Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So we're going to look at chapter 3 in the book of Acts, and of course it's a well-known, well-known piece of narrative, isn't it? I suppose it's something we will have learned even from our childhood. We'll have heard stories. The story of the man who was healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. I remember as a wee boy going along to a children's meeting on the steps just down the street from where we lived. And it was run by a Presbyterian elder and he came every week on a certain day at a certain time and he got all the children on the steps of the entry it was just two between two houses a, a big passageway leading down from one street to the next and there were steps on it and he got children on the steps and he taught them wee songs and he preached to them the gospel and he was a very very faithful man indeed And one of the wee songs that I learned to sing at that little children's meeting went like this. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and held out his palms. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. That wee verse stuck in my head. Right throughout life. I could quote it to you. Even when I was in my teens. And and I was wayward and away from the Lord. Far away. The one thing that was in my head was that little story. About the man who couldn't walk. Don't know who he was of course. But we do know that he was lame. I want you to look for a wee moment at the man's condition. Because this condition that he has is a kind of an analogy, a demonstration of our own spiritual condition. It's a characteristic of the general nature of men and women who are born as sinners, born out of Christ and without a saviour. This man was crippled. He'd been brought to the gate of the temple so he could beg for alms for some passers-by. It was customary. If a beggar wanted to ask for alms, then the, the perceived wisdom was that the best place to be would be the temple. Men going to the temple would be worshippers. Giving alms was part of the religion of a pious Jew. The man asked Peter and John for alms. He was... Lame from birth, the Bible tells us. Verse 2. Certain man, lame from his mother's womb. Lame from his mother's womb. He was helpless. He was lame. He was unable to work. He had to be brought there and deposited at the gate of the temple. He would never have been accepted. He would never have been Uh, welcomed in society he would never have fitted in he would have been living a life of wretched abuse and poverty because he hadn't any means to pay for anything 
So he would have been dirty and smelly and wretched and poor and crippled and lame like us. For Martin Luther said, and I believe he said it as he passed away from this life into eternity, we are all beggars. I wonder how he had this man in mind. His condition is a mirror image of the sinner's condition. Born in sin, we are helpless sinners. We are unable to walk with God. This man seems to have had no family and no acceptance in society. And now he's an adult. In fact, in chapter 4, we read that the man was over 40 years old. And his condition hasn't improved He hasn't been able to make it any better. No one's been able to improve his condition as life progressed. He's simply allowed this condition to take over his life. It's leading him inexorably towards death. There's nothing he can do. He's like us. Everything that he has is repulsive to others. The the sinner lost in his sin has no desire to pray, no desire of the Lord. Everything that is the Lord's is foreign and repulsive to them. And then the day comes when, being unable to improve our condition, we die. And we go to some big ecumenical church and... We're buried in the sure and certain hope of a glorious resurrection by some minister or other. And as the body is being led to rest in such a grand ceremony and with such dignity, the soul is enduring endless torment in a burning hell. It's the lot of the sinner. Exactly the same as the lot of this poor man. He is an illustration of our spiritual condition. We are beggars and we cannot remove our beggarly elements from us. And we will die in our beggarliness and we will perish. Being a beggar, he's left in ruins. Unable to fend for himself. Unable to work for a living, he's reduced to begging to earn just a few scraps of food. He saw Peter and John about to go into the temple and he asked for alms. Almsgiving, of course, is a moral obligation in Judaism, part of the religion. And... He's pleading for alms. Look at one of the interesting things here. uh, That in verse 4, Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. Isn't that an interesting little phrase? Because it gives me an idea of that man sitting there. He He couldn't even raise his head to look at the people going in and out of the temple. He's ashamed. He's sitting, looking down, 
and he can't lift his eyes. He's so ashamed. Not like the modern days. I was walking along Church Lane in Belfast just the Friday before last, I think it was. It was one of those really wet days. And I had to go into the Victoria Square shopping centre to get something uh, out of a shop there. And I was walking along Upper Church Lane when these two extremely scruffy people, two men, came right up into my pathway. They were wearing hats. They were wearing wee woolly hats. And they looked as if they hadn't shaved or washed. And one of them said to me, Do you ever think of helping the homeless? I said, I do. Well, he says, we're homeless. You can help us. I thought, well, there's a bold approach. So I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you something for a cup of tea. And I put my hands in my pocket. And when I brought out what I had in my pocket, I found I had two pounds. Wouldn't take you very far. Wouldn't he maybe buy you a cup of tea? So I said to them, look, I'm sorry, I've only got two pounds. You see, the thing is, nowadays we pay for everything by contactless payments. We don't go around with... So I said, I've only got two pounds. Well, that too. And the man says, all right, give us it anyway. It'll start. He wasn't going to say no. Afterwards, I was thinking to myself, do you know what I should have done? I should have said to him, let's go round the corner into a wee shop here. Because all these shops nowadays sell sandwiches. And they have coffee machines. And if we'd gone round there, I could have bought him with my card. I could have bought him, bought them a sandwich each and a packet of crisps and a, and a hot drink. But it was too late thinking about that. I'd think about that again. They were, they were bold in their, in their begging, weren't they? They weren't a bit afraid to come up and introduce themselves and ask for alms. I didn't mind. I really didn't. This man, he didn't even look as lift his head. He didn't even look at people. You can see him sitting in your mind's eye. You can see him sitting outside the gate of the temple with his head away down, bowed low in pity. And he's holding out his hands and he's saying, Arms, help me. And yet, he has hope. You see, this man has some things going for him. Even though he is in ruins, even though he's been afflicted with his ailment from birth, even though his condition has not improved over the years and has left him totally in ruins and unable even to lift his head, so bowed down under the weight and burden of his condition is he, that there is hope for him. There is hope for him because he is still alive. Now that may seem obvious, blatantly obvious, but it's important Because tonight, if we as sinners still are drawing breath, there is hope for us. There is a time to repent. It is time to seek the Lord. It is time to turn from our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There is hope while we are yet alive. For the minute that this life ends, we go into eternity. We will stand before God. It is appointed unto men once to die and after the judgment. So there is hope. He's still drawing breath. There's still a possibility. Isn't it better to speak to to someone while they're still alive than to go to their funeral when they've passed away? Sometimes people will ring me up and they'll say, maybe funeral directors or something, and they'll say, look, there's a man here, he's died, and he... He, he, he hasn't got any minister and his family don't know what to do. Would you mind taking a funeral service for him? I remember that happening one time. And I went to the family and they were telling me about their lost loved one. And I said to them, you know, I'd really have loved to have spoken to her while she was still alive. And their reply was, no, she didn't want a minister anywhere near her, so we couldn't have called anybody in. Why do you want me now? Why do you want a minister now when you didn't want one when he could actually go in and speak to this person about eternal life? What's the point of going to a funeral service if you've had opportunity to speak to the person and they have not, and you have not taken it? Different if you go along, of course, during the summer there, I was visiting a man who was dying. Along with Fred, one of the folks from Ballymacash, and I'd gone to see a man, and we had talked, we went to see him, I think, three times. And he was only a few days away from death. He was dying of cancer. And I went in to see him, and I sat at his side of his bed, and I said, John, I would like to talk to you about eternal life Can I talk to you about how you can have eternal life? He said, I don't want to hear. Three days away from death. I have discharged my responsibility. Where there's life, there's still hope. Because death comes so swiftly and so unexpectedly. And so this man has this in his favour. He is still drawing breath. There is still opportunity for him to be delivered from his burden. There's another thing in his favour, and that is that he has some friends. I wonder about these people, don't you? They must have been good friends. Because this man was brought... Every day, it says in verse 2, it's specific, they led him daily at the gate of the temple. These must have been very faithful friends, mustn't they? They must have gone along every day to the poor man's house, and if he was lame and couldn't walk, these friends, I don't know how many of them, they would have gone along and they would have lifted him up and carried him and placed him at the place where he begged, and then presumably at night, 
in order that they might do it the next day. Presumably at night, they would have gone along and they'd have carried him and brought him back home. He didn't get there on his own. He had friends who were prepared to bring him to the place where he could be helped. And although they didn't know it, that day when they brought him to the temple, they were bringing him to the place where he would meet with the Lord where his condition would be restored. This man's cure, remember, was all of Christ. But God used his friends, and he used Peter, and he used John as human instruments to bring that healing about. So this man's in an awful dilemma. He's got a terrible condition. He's a man who is helpless. He's a man whose life is in ruins. He's a man who has been nothing but a beggar from birth to manhood over 40 years in the most miserable state. And it is so that day when he arrives at the temple gate to begin reaching out to the people who are coming to worship there. And among them are Peter and John going up to the temple to pray. The man's condition. Let's think of his cure. The man's cure. Because he's going to receive a gift that is far better and far more effective than any monetary offering and any gift. This whole man's life is going to be transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be cured. He will be cured, and that cure will be entirely divine in its origin. Peter and John did not cure this man. They had no financial help to give. Remember that. He gave heed unto them, says verse 5, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, and these are the famous words, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now that's the only way to preach to sinners, isn't it? That's the only way. You can't come to a sinner and stand up and boast about yourself. You can't come to a sinner and tell them how wonderful you are. What a great preacher you are. What a learned professor you are. You can't come to a sinner and boast your own abilities. All that you can do is stand up and say, Listen, I have nothing to give you but Jesus. Wasn't it? the author of the Reformed Pastor, who said that we must preach as a dying man to dying men. We must preach as a sinner to sinners. We must preach as a wretch to wretches. I remember one time in a certain congregational church where I was the minister, uh, one of the young young wives of the church 
said to me, you know, we really have to have something to offer people these days. We have to have something to offer them. I, I said, what were you thinking of? We have to offer them something in the way of excitement. We have to offer them something in the way of worship. We have to offer them something in the way of praise. And we have to offer them a, a social life. And Wait a minute. Can we not just offer them Jesus? No, apparently not. But you see, that's exactly what Peter and John do here. When they said, silver and gold have I none, they were speaking the truth. I have nothing to offer you that can help you. There's nothing I can give you that can change your condition. There's nothing I can do to make you a better person. There's nothing I can do to bring about this life transformation that you need. Silver and gold, I have nothing that will help you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Only God Christ to offer sinners, nothing else. So Peter, verse 7, took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. That's interesting, isn't it? I've seen examples on medical programs and documentaries about people who have been injured, seriously injured, maybe received back injuries or crippling injuries, or they've had some dreadful disease or a major operation, and they've been lying maybe for a year in a hospital bed, or perhaps they have been abroad fighting in one of the recent conflicts in Afghanistan or Iraq, or maybe even in earlier days here in Northern Ireland, and, and they've been blown up in an incident, in a bomb. They've been injured, and they're in hospital. And after their healing, they're taken to Musgrave Park Hospital in Northern Ireland, or one of the, and they have the military wing there, Maybe they haven't anymore, but they used to have. And it was a tremendous place. It was very skilled in getting people back on their feet. And you would see them walking. And even though they were fully grown adults, they would have to learn how to walk all over again, wouldn't they? And they would put them on these parallel bars. And you'll see them watching, holding on with a physiotherapist or a nurse on either side. And they'd be edging their way very slowly along the bars, foot after foot, just inches at a time, learning again how to walk right from the very beginning. Here's a man who's never walked, never ever. He was born crippled, he couldn't walk. And yet, immediately, his feet and ankle bones received strength. Verse 8, and he, leaping up, stood and walked. There was no process of learning here. Immediately, he jumped to his feet. He jumped to his feet and he walked and he stood. He was able to have immediate 
secure. You know, it's amazing that the soul that believes in the Lord Jesus is instantly cured. I remember hearing people talking about people being saved by a process of osmosis, how they gradually grew into Christianity. Do you not know that there is a moment when a soul passes from death unto life? A moment of transformation. A moment whenever the whole, the soul of the sinner, the spirit of the sinner is renewed through the work of the Holy Spirit and they pass from darkness into light. Okay, sometimes we may not know when that actually happens. But it happens in an instant. A Christian poet once wrote these words, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives, passing from death unto life. This cure was entirely of the Lord, not of the disciples. This cure was instantly effective. This cure was totally effective. It was real, and it was visible, and it was joyful. It is a wonderful thing when the Lord Jesus restores the soul, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within the life of one who was a dead, wretched sinner. And this man, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. There is a cure for sin. It's a divine cure. It's an instant cure. It's an effective cure. It's a cure that is found only in Christ. The man's condition. The man's cure. And lastly, the man's changed life. Because his healing that day had a profound effect. For he was changed physically, wasn't he? He stood up and walked. Don't underestimate the significance of that. A man who had never walked before never needed to beg again. He would be able to earn his living. He wouldn't need people to carry him anymore. He could do it. He could do it on his own. He could walk. He's never been walked before. Now in an instant, he's walking and he's leaping. That's a profound change. But there's other changes too. Not only was he changed physically, but he's got new companions. Look at verse 11. The man, the lame man which was healed, held Peter and John. And all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's. You know, I, 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 I'm not surprised. I'm not one for hugging people. I really am. I, I, I used to have a real avoidance. I had an avoidance tactic. So that if I was at a church somewhere where there was somebody who wanted to hug me, I had, and I saw them making their approach, my tactic was to hold out my hand to be shook like that which kept them effectively at arm's length. But I would imagine that if you had been lame for 40 years 
And two of God's servants had come along and preached the gospel to you. And your whole life has been restored through Christ. And you were leaping and praising God. I would imagine you could do very little else but grab the hold of those two men and wrap your arms around them. And that's what was happening. He was embracing them. Holding on to them. He's got new companions. He's got a new family and new friends. And a whole new life. He's changed physically. He's got changed companionship. And he has a new life in Christ. Because the physical effects are great. But how much greater the spiritual effects. He's restored to health. And what's the first thing he does? Wouldn't you think he'd go and apply for a job? He goes into the temple to worship the God who has saved him, rescued him. You see, as saved sinners, we are lifted by the hand of God from the prostration of sin. Now walking in the Lord's ways, we joyfully rejoice. We unite together with God's people to praise him for his wonderful salvation. Profound effect upon that man. It had a profound effect upon others as well. There were people who were watching. That day the church grew yet again. That incident gathered people around. People were watching and seeing what was happening. And Peter began to preach the gospel onto them. He does it in verse 19. He says without fear of, without great boldness and without fear of the crowd, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. He knows what this is about. This is about Christ. This is about the forgiveness of sins. He's using this man's death, this man's healing rather, as a visual aid. Repent, be converted that your sins may be blotted out. People are hearing the preaching of the word of God. They're hearing the preaching of Jesus being raised up from the dead. They're hearing the preaching of the law. They're hearing the gospel. They're hearing that they must turn from their iniquities to the power of Christ. Verse 26, and verse 4 in chapter 4, it says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. Of course, they weren't the only ones it had an effect on. For the Jewish authorities are also watching, and they see the incident too, and they're not just so happy.